0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Thomas Hardy, The Return of the Native. Book Two, The Arrival. Chapter Six, The Two Stand Face to Face. The room had been arranged with a view to the dancing, the large oak table having been moved back till it stood as a breastwork to the fireplace. At each end, behind, and in the chimney-corner, were grouped the guests, many of them being warm-faced and panting, among whom Eustacia cursorily recognized some well-to-do persons from beyond the heath. Thomasin, as she had expected, was not visible and Eustacia recollected that a light had shone from an upper window when they were outside, the window probably of Thomason's room. A nose, chin, hands, knees, and toes projected from the seat within the chimney opening, which members she found to unite in the person of Granfer Cantle, Mrs. Yeobright's occasional assistant in the garden, and therefore one of the invited. The smoke went up from an etna of peat in front of him, played around the notches of the chimney-crook, struck against the salt-box, and got lost among the flitches. Another part of the room soon riveted her gaze. At the other side of the chimney stood the settle, which is the necessary supplement to a fire so open that nothing less than a strong breeze will carry up the smoke. It is to the hearths of old-fashioned cavernous fireplaces what the east belt of trees is to the exposed country estate, or the north wall to the garden. Outside the settle candles gutter, locks of hair wave, young women shiver, and old men sneeze. Inside is paradise. Not a symptom of a draught disturbs the air. The sitters' backs are as warm as their faces and songs and old tales are drawn from the occupants by the comfortable heat, like fruit from melon plants in a frame. It was, however, not with those who sat in the settle that Eustacia was concerned. A face showed itself with marked distinctness against the dark tanned wood of the upper part. The owner, who was leaning against the settle's outer end, was Clement Yeobright, or Klim, as he was called here. She knew it could be nobody else. The spectacle constituted an area of two feet in Rembrandt's intensest manner. A strange power in the lounger's appearance lay in the fact that, though his whole figure was visible, the observer's eye was only aware of his face. To one of middle age the countenance was that of a young man, though a youth might hardly have seen any necessity for the term of immaturity. But it was really one of those faces which convey less the idea of so many years as its age, than of so much experience as its store. The number of their years may have adequately summed up Jared, Mahalalil, and the rest of the Antediluvians, but the age of a modern man is to be measured by the intensity of its history." The face was well shaped, even excellently, but the mind within was beginning to use it as a mere waste tablet whereon to trace its idiosyncrasies as they developed themselves. The beauty here visible would in no long time be ruthlessly overrun by its parasite, thought, which might just as well have fed upon a plainer exterior where there was nothing it could harm, Had heaven preserved Yeobright from a wearing habit of meditation, people would have said, A handsome man. Had his brain unfolded under sharper contours, they would have said, A thoughtful man. But an inner strenuousness was preying upon an outer symmetry, and they rated his look as singular. Hence people who began by beholding him ended by perusing him his countenance was overlaid with legible meanings. Without being thought-worn, he yet had certain marks derived from a perception of his surroundings, such as are not unfrequently found on men at the end of four or five years of endeavour which follow the close of placid pupillage. He already showed that thought is a disease of flesh, and indirectly bore evidence that ideal physical beauty is incompatible with emotional development and a full recognition of the coil of things. Mental luminousness must be fed with the oil of life, even though there is already a physical need for it, and a pitiful sight of two demands on one supply was just showing itself here. When standing before certain men, the philosopher regrets that thinkers— are but perishable tissue, the artist that perishable tissue has to think. Thus to deplore, each from his point of view, the mutually destructive interdependence of spirit and flesh, would have been instinctive with these in critically observing Yeobright. As for his look, it was a natural cheerfulness, striving against depression from without, and not quite succeeding. The look suggested isolation, but it revealed something more. As is usual with bright natures, the deity that lies ignominiously chained within an ephemeral human carcass shone out of him like a ray. The effect upon Eustacia was palpable. The extraordinary pitch of excitement that she had reached beforehand would indeed have caused her to be influenced by the most commonplace man— She was troubled at Yobright's presence. The remainder of the play ended. The Saracen's head was cut off, and St. George stood as victor. Nobody commented any more than they would have commented on the fact of mushrooms coming in autumn, or snowdrops in spring. They took the piece as phlegmatically as did the actors themselves— It was a phase of cheerfulness which was, as a matter of course, to be passed through every Christmas, and there was no more to be said. They sang the plaintive chant which follows the play, during which all the dead men rise to their feet in a silent and awful manner, like the ghosts of Napoleon's soldiers in the Midnight Review. Afterwards the door opened, and Fairway appeared on the threshold, accompanied by Christian and another. They had been waiting outside for the conclusion of the play, as the players had waited for the conclusion of the dance. "'Come in, come in,' said Mrs. Yeobright, and Clym went forward to welcome them. "'How is it you are so late? Granfra Candle has been here ever so long, and we thought you'd have come with him, as you live so near one another.' "'Well, I should have come earlier,' Mr. Fairway said, and paused to look along the beam of the ceiling, for a nail to hang his hat on. But, finding his accustomed one to be occupied by the mistletoe, and all the nails in the walls to be burdened with bunches of holly, he at last relieved himself of the hat by ticklishly balancing it between the candle-box and the head of the clock-case. "'I should have come earlier, ma'am,' he resumed, with a more composed air. "'But I know what parties be, and how there's none too much room in folks' houses at such times, so I thought I wouldn't come till you'd got settled a bit.' "'And I thought so too, Mrs. Yobright," said Christian earnestly. "'But father there was so eager that he had no manners at all, "'and left home almost afore it was dark. "'I told him it barely decent in old man to come so over soon. "'But words be wind.' "'I wasn't going to bide waiting about till half the game was over. "'I'm as light as a kite when anything's going on,' "'crowed Grand Cantle from the chimney-seat.' Fairway had meanwhile concluded a critical gaze at Yobright. "'Now, you may not believe it,' he said to the rest of the room, "'but I should never have knowed this gentleman "'if I'd met him anywhere off his own heath. "'He's altered so much.' "'You two have altered, and for the better, I think, Timothy,' "'said Yeobright, surveying the firm figure of Fairway. "'Master Yeobright, look me over too.' "'I've altered for the better, haven't I, eh?' "'said Grandpa Cantle.' "'rising and placing himself something above half a foot from Clym's eye "'to induce the most searching criticism. "'To be sure he will,' said Fairway, "'taking the candle and moving it over the surface of the grandfather's countenance, "'the subject of his scrutiny irradiating himself with light and pleasant smiles "'and giving himself jerks of juvenility. "'You haven't changed much,' said Yeobright. "'If there's any difference, Granfer is younger.' appended Fairway decisively. "'And yet not my own doing, and I feel no pride in it,' said the pleased ancient. "'But I can't be cured of my vagaries. Them I plead guilty to. Yes, Master Cantle always was that, and we know. But I'm nothing by the side of you, Mr. Clem.' "'Nor any of us,' said Humphrey, in a low, rich tone of admiration, not intended to reach anybody's ears. "'Really?' "'there would have be been nobody here who could have stood as decent second to him, or even third. "'If I hadn't been a soldier in the bang-up locals, as we was called for our smartness,' "'said Cantle. and even as tis, we all look a little scammish beside him. "'But in the year four t'was said there wasn't a finer figure in the whole South Wessex than I. "'As I looked when dashing past the shop windows with the rest of our company, "'on the day we ran out to Budmouth,' "'because it was thoughted that Bony had landed round the point. "'There was I, straight as a young poplar, wi me firelock, and me bagnet, and me spatterdashes, "'and my stock sawing my jaws off, "'and my accoutrements sheening like the seven stars. "'Yes, neighbours, I was a pretty sight in me soldiering days. "'You ought to have seen me in four. 'Tis his mother's side where Master Clym's figure comes from, bless ye,' "'said Timothy. "'I knowed her brothers well.' "'Longer coffins were never made in the whole country of South Wessex, "'and tis said that poor George's knees were crumpled up a little e'en as t'was.' "'Coffins where?' inquired Christian, drawing nearer. "'Hath the ghost of one appeared to anybody, Master Fairway?' "'No, no, don't let your mind so mislead your ears, Christian, and be a man,' said Timothy reproachfully. "'I will,' said Christian, "'but now I think, aunt, my shadow last night seemed just the shape of a coffin.' "'What is it a sign of when your shade's like a coffin neighbours? "'It can't be nothing to be afeard of, I suppose.' "'Afeard? No,' said Grandfather. "'Faith, I was never afeard of nothing except bony, "'or I shouldn't have been the soldier I was. "'Yes, tis a thousand pities you didn't see me in four. By this time the Mummers were preparing to leave, but Mrs. Yeobright stopped them by asking them to sit down and have a little supper. To this invitation, Father Christmas, in the name of them all, readily agreed. Eustacia was happy in the opportunity of staying a little longer. The cold and frosty night without was doubly frigid to her, but the lingering was not without its difficulties. Mrs. Yeobright, for want of room in the larger apartment, placed a bench for the mummers halfway through the pantry door, which opened from the sitting-room. Here they seated themselves in a row, The door being left open. Thus they were still virtually in the same apartment. Mrs. Yeobright now murmured a few words to her son, who crossed the room to the pantry door, striking his head against the mistletoe as he passed, and brought the mummers beef and bread, cake pastry, mead, and elder wine, the waiting being done by him and his mother, that the little maid servant might sit as guest. The mummers doffed their helmets and began to eat and drink. "'But you will surely have some,' said Klim, to the Turkish knight, as he stood before that warrior, tray in hand. She had refused, and still sat covered, only the sparkle of her eyes being visible between the ribbons which covered her face. "'None, thank you,' replied Eustacia. "'He's quite a youngster,' said the Saracen apologetically, "'and you must excuse him. He's not one of the old set, but of us because t'other couldn't come.' "'But he will take something,' persisted Yeobright. "'Try a glass of mead or elder wine.' "'Yes, you'd better try that,' said the Saracen. "'It'll keep the cold out going home along.' Though Eustacia could not eat without uncovering her face, she could drink easily enough beneath her disguise. The elder wine was accordingly accepted, and the glass vanished inside the ribbons." At moments during this performance Eustacia was half in doubt about the security of her position, yet it had a fearful joy. A series of attentions paid to her, and yet not to her but to some imaginary person, by the first man she had ever been inclined to adore, complicated her emotions indescribably. She had loved him partly because he was exceptional in this scene, partly because she had determined to love him, chiefly because she was in desperate need of loving somebody after wearying of Wild Eve. Believing that she must love him in spite of herself, she had been influenced after the fashion of the Second Lord Lyttelton and other persons who have dreamed that they were to die on a certain day, and by stress of a morbid imagination have actually brought about that event once let a maiden admit the possibility of her being stricken with love for someone at a certain hour and place, and the thing is as good as done. Did anything at this moment suggest to Yeobright the sex of the creature whom that fantastic guise enclosed? How extended was her scope both in feeling and in making others feel? And how far her compass transcended that of her companions in the band?' When the disguised Queen of Love appeared before Aeneas, a preternatural perfume accompanied her presence and betrayed her quality. If such a mysterious emanation ever was projected by the emotions of an earthly woman upon their object, it must have signified Eustacia's presence to Yeobright now. He looked at her wistfully, then seemed to fall into a reverie, as if he were forgetting what he observed. The momentary situation ended. He passed on, and Eustacia sipped her wine without knowing what she drank. The man for whom she had predetermined to nourish a passion went into the small room and across it to the further extremity. The mummers, as has been stated, were seated on a bench, one end of which extended into the small apartment or pantry for want of space in the outer room. Eustacia, partly from shyness, had chosen the midmost seat, which thus commanded a view of the interior of the pantry, as well as the room containing the guests. When Clym passed down the pantry, her eyes followed him in the gloom which prevailed there. At the remote end was a door, which, just as he was about to open it for himself, was opened by somebody within, and light streamed forth. The person was Thomasin, with a candle. "'looking anxious, pale, and interesting. Yeobright appeared glad to see her, and pressed her hand. "'That's right, Tamsie,' he said heartily, "'as though recalled to himself by the sight of her. "'You've decided to come down. I'm glad of it.' "'Hush! No, no,' she said quickly. "'I only came to speak to you. "'But why not join us?' "'I cannot. At least, I would rather not. "'I'm not well enough.' "'and we shall have plenty of time together, "'now you're going to be home a good long holiday.' "'It isn't nearly so pleasant without you. "'Are you really ill?' "'Just a little, my old cousin. "'Here,' she said, playfully sweeping her hand across her heart. "'Ah, mother should have asked somebody else to be present tonight, perhaps.' "'Oh, no, indeed. "'I merely stepped down, Klim, to ask you—' "'Here he followed her through the doorway, into the private room beyond—' And the door closing, Eustacia and the mamma who sat next to her, the only other witness to the performance, saw and heard no more. The heat flew to Eustacia's head and cheeks. She instantly guessed that Clym, having been home only these two or three days, had not as yet been made acquainted with Thomasin's painful situation with regard to Wild-Eve, and seeing her living here just as she had been living before he left home. He naturally suspected nothing. Eustacia felt a wild jealousy of Thomasin in that instant. Though Thomasin might possibly have tender sentiments towards another man as yet, how long could they be expected to last, when she was shut up here with this interesting and travelled cousin of hers? There was no knowing what affection might soon break out between the two, so constantly in each other's society, and not a distracting object near— Klim's boyish love for her might have languished, but it might easily be revived again. Eustacia was nettled by her own contrivances. What a sheer waste of herself to be dressed thus while another was shining to advantage! Had she known the full effect of the encounter, she would have moved heaven and earth to get here in a natural manner. The power of her face all lost, the charm of her emotions all disguised— The fascinations of her coquetry denied existence, nothing but a voice left to her. She had a sense of the doom of Echo. "'Nobody here respects me,' she said. She had overlooked the fact that, in coming as a boy, among other boys, she would be treated as a boy. The slight, though of her own causing, and self-explanatory, she was unable to dismiss as unwittingly shown, so sensitive had the situation made her.' women have done much for themselves in histrionic dress. To look far below those who, like a certain fair personator of Polly Peacham early in the last century, and another of Lydia Languish early in this, have won not only love but ducal coronets into the bargain, whole shoals of them have reached to the initial satisfaction of getting love almost whence they would— "'but the Turkish knight was denied even the chance of achieving this "'by the fluttering ribbons which she dared not brush aside. "'Yobright returned to the room without his cousin, "'when within two or three feet of Eustacia he stopped, "'as if again arrested by a thought. "'He gazed at her. "'She looked another way, disconcerted, "'and wondered how long this purgatory was to last. "'After lingering a few seconds he passed on again.' To court their own discomfiture by love is a common instinct with certain perfervid women. Conflicting sensations of love, fear, and shame reduced Eustacia to a state of utmost uneasiness. To escape was her great and immediate desire. The other mummers appeared to be in no hurry to leave, and murmuring to the lad who sat next to her that she preferred waiting for them outside the house, she moved to the door, as imperceptibly as possible, "'opened it, and slipped out. "'The calm, lone scene reassured her. "'She went forward to the palings and leant over them, "'looking at the moon. "'She had stood thus but a little time "'when the door again opened. "'Expecting to see the remainder of the band, Eustacia turned, "'but no, Clim Yeobright came out as softly as she had done "'and closed the door behind him. "'He advanced and stood beside her, "'I have an odd opinion,' he said, "'and should like to ask you a question. "'Are you a woman, or am I wrong?' "'I am a woman.' "'His eyes lingered on her with great interest. "'Do girls often play as mummers now? "'They never used to.' "'They don't now.' "'Why did you?' "'To get excitement and shake off depression,' "'she said in low tones.' What depressed you? Life. That's a cause of depression a good many have to put up with. Yes. A long silence. And do you find excitement? asked Klim at last. At this moment, perhaps. Then you are vexed at being discovered? Yes, though I thought I might be. I would gladly have asked you to our party had I known you wished to come. "'Have I ever been acquainted with you in my youth?' "'Never.' "'Won't you come in again, and stay as long as you like?' "'No, I wish not to be further recognised. "'Well, you are safe with me.' After remaining in thought a minute, he added gently, "'I will not intrude upon you longer. It is a strange way of meeting, and I will not ask why I find a cultivated woman playing such a part as this.' She did not volunteer the reason which he seemed to hope for, and he wished her good night, going thence round to the back of the house, where he walked up and down by himself for some time before entering. Eustacia, warmed with an inner fire, could not wait for her companions after this. She flung back the ribbons from her face, opened the gate, and at once struck into the heath. She did not hasten along— Her grandfather was in bed at this hour, for she so frequently walked upon the hills on moonlight nights, that he took no notice of her comings and goings, and, enjoying himself in his own way, left her to do likewise. A more important subject than that of getting indoors now engrossed her. Yeobright, if he had the least curiosity, would infallibly discover her name. What then?— she first felt a sort of exultation at the way in which the adventure had terminated, even though at moments between her exultation she was abashed and blushful. Then this consideration recurred to chill her. What was the use of her exploit? She was at present a total stranger to the O'Bright family. The unreasonable nimbus of romance with which she had encircled that man might be her misery— How could she allow herself to become so infatuated with a stranger, and to fill the cup of her sorrow there would be Thomasin, living day after day in inflammable proximity to him? For she had just learnt that, contrary to her first belief, he was going to stay at home some considerable time. She reached the wicket at Mistover Knapp, but before opening it she turned and faced the heath once more the form of Rainbarrow stood above the hills, and the moon stood above Rainbarrow. The air was charged with silence and frost. The scene reminded Eustacia of a circumstance which till that moment she had totally forgotten. She had promised to meet Wild Eve by the barrow this very night at eight, to give a final answer to his pleading for an elopement. She herself had fixed the evening and the hour. He had probably come to the spot, waited there in the cold, and been greatly disappointed. "'Well, so much the better. It didn't hurt him,' she said serenely. Eve had at present the rayless outline of the sun through smoked glass, and she could say such things as that with the greatest facility. She remained deeply pondering, and Thomasin's winning manner toward her cousin arose again upon Eustacia's mind.' Oh, that she had been married to Damon before this, she said, and she would if it hadn't been for me, if I had only known, if I had only known. Eustacia once more lifted her deep stormy eyes to the moonlight, and, sighing that tragic sigh of hers which was so much like a shudder, entered the shadow of the roof. She threw her trappings in the outhouse, rolled them up, and went indoors to her chamber. End of chapter 6